Hey, Forge family. Podcast number nine was filled with James, the, the head of the church in Jerusalem, writing to the assemblies of believers abroad, and it was filled with correction. He was aware that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition had overtaken the fledgling leadership teams church by church. There was a wave that was engineered to create chaos, conflict, hatred, and even murder. And we identified its source. It was the wisdom from below. Earthly, natural, and demonic. And let's put emphasis on the latter one right here. Bitter competition and pursuit of pleasures flow out of demonic influence. James, as overseer and spiritual father, confronted the evident friendship with the world that was there. The embracing of the moral and civil values of a lost culture and called it what it was. Unfaithfulness to God. Spiritual adultery. In verse 5 of chapter 4, there's a shift. First, I, it, first was the phrase, is scripture not empty? You know, is it empty? Is it vain? Is it worthless? And then second, um, James states that the Holy Spirit implanted in the believers at their new birth, the ones that are caught in this mess in the churches, they have the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit in them longs, deeply desires for them. And immediately he follows that statement with the words, but he gives greater grace. There, there is the pivot. And the door to repentance and restoration opens. James followed up with ten imperatives aimed at replacing ambition with humility by Holy Spirit. He said to submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, get spiritually clean, weep and mourn for your sins, and humble yourselves in the presence of God. Lastly, James, returning to the address form of brothers and sisters, he, he cuts across criticism, slander, and judgment of others. He warns that to persist in those practices sets believers in positions of judging the royal law, and after you've done that, after you've stepped on the fact that I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, okay, I set it sets them up as someone who would usurp the position of the one judge and the one lawgiver. Whoa, that's blasphemy. So let's pray. Lord God, at one time or another, we have all, all fallen into criticism, into competition-like feelings, and worse, those emotions have been inside the fellowship of believers. None of us can claim that our hearts and lips have been clean. So, together again, we choose you. We repent. We ask for you to pour out forgiveness and cleansing by Holy Spirit. And Lord, lead us into humility and joy and blessing others. We're not immune to the wiles of the devil, but we choose to resist. So, and we choose to encourage one another, and we call on the wisdom from above. Thank you, Lord Jesus. 
Your shed blood is the highest surfactant. It dissolves all stains and breaks all bondages. We need you, Lord. In your mighty name, amen. All right, family. Go gather up your James texts on your notebooks. Get ready for podcast number 10. We're here in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Let's read it. This is where James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Indeed, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So in this section here, we're beginning, starting verse 13, James has concluded his challenges and his corrections to the churches on strife in the congregations. And now he takes on another issue that's present, and he he tries to interdict it. He just pounces on it. He doesn't want the example set by successful, arrogant businessmen to spread. In verse 13, he starts with, come now. Uh, which that's a common entry statement to begin argument against opponents, or it's a preface for some harsh words. It's repeated again in chapter 5, verse 1, so there's more coming, okay? James has heard from his congregations of another spreading problem. The problem was present wherever merchants were part of the congregations. In the ancient world of James's day, New Roman colonies and new cities were being planted. It was known that when Jewish merchants set up business practices and pipelines, the economies of those new new cities would begin to grow and flourish. They got profitable. Okay, the family of Saul of Tarsus—that's our our Paul, our Saint Paul. Okay, the, his family emigrated to the south coast of Asia Minor, to Tarsus, four generations before he was born in A.D. 5. It's just an example that the the mobility of the Jewish merchant, in this case, his father was the head head, uh, rabbi in Tarsus, but he also had a side business that was profitable. Also in Acts, Lydia, the businesswoman from Thyatira, living in Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. She imported the crushed and powdered purple seashells from the Turkish, today's modern, you know, Asia Minor coast, Turkey's coast. Okay, and with that purple powder, she would create dye that she could submerge good cloth into it and make the purple cloth that she sold, that was highly prized by the wealthy people. Okay, the opportunities to establish new business was a siren song for merchants. 
for entrepreneurs. See, raw materials like leather, silk, wool, wine, olive oil, gold, pearls, uncut gemstones, all of that and more was available cheaply in those outer regions of the empire. Merchants just had to buy low, create a little added value, as in perhaps you, you buy wool, you card it, you make thread, and you weave fabric, and then you send it on to be dyed and cut and sewn, and when it arrives at the other end of the pipeline, it can be sold for a substantial profit. These merchants were part of a small, middle economic ground in the Greco-Roman world, where 70-80% of the population lived at the subsistence level, and a small percent were vastly wealthy and powerful. And wedged in between the very poor and the very wealthy were these merchants. Now the problem James is calling out isn't planning. And it isn't making a profit. It is the whole package of doing business without even a thought, not even a sniff of God's plan and his sovereignty. And perhaps for those successful merchants, profit had come to be understood in their world as God's will for them. James is mindful that the whole of his assemblies are also being influenced by the undertow, the pull of independence, to plan, to plot out careers, to marry, to travel here and there, also without first inquiring of the Lord what his plans might be. Now when we look at Genesis 6, there's much the same pattern, eating, drinking, marrying, but without any reference point to God whatsoever. God is shut out of it. He was given no thought. James comes hard against the practical atheism he sees in his assemblies. You see, Jesus Christ is not just for Sabbath, not just for Sunday worship. He is, he is determined to be Lord of all of life, from the marketplace to the marriage bed, from the breakfast table to the wedding feast of the Lamb. He wants it all. So two things here. The merchants and those who would envy them or emulate them are reproved. They know better. They're reproved by James for their secular, worldly planning that excluded God. And second, they plan to get rich. Now, here, wealth is not the issue. It is how wealth is achieved apart from the council apart from the presence of God. James says, you have laid out your plans. Your successes have rolled over into more successes, but you have assumed you know what tomorrow will bring. Now, I want to read Proverbs 27, 1 to you. This is an aphorism. This is not, it's not a promise. This is, just, this is just an observation. But boy, it's freighted, Okay. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. James points out 
the very frailty of their lives. He says, you guys and any like you are, are like a mist. The Greek word is atmis. Okay? We get our word atmosphere from that root. It's the sea mist along the desert coast of Palestine. There, there you see it. And a breeze comes by and it's gone. It is the waft of condensation of your breath in the cold air. It is there and then it's gone. And how many of you sat around a campfire and picked up a blazing stick and written your name with a smoking, flaming ember on the end of it? Okay, Or you pick up a, a um, sparkler at 4th of July and you, you twirl around and, and there's sparkles and there's light and, there's, and it goes out. And then there's a return to darkness. So this uncertainty of life is not there to cause fear or static responses, immobility. It is there to prompt our dependence on God. Then in verse 15, James has been, he's, he's doing some remedial teaching to those who know better. But he's, he's taking a moment here to teach them again. So they all hear it again. They all get it again. Now some of you are familiar in, in, uh, in, with the history and the reputation of a man named David Hogan. Uh, of Freedom Ministries out of Brownsville, Texas. David and Debbie have been missionaries for 40 years in southern Mexico. Ministering to the 23 indigenous Los Indios, you know, the tribals, uh, tribal peoples, they're not mestizos. They're not mixed with Spanish, Spaniard blood at all. They're, they're Indians, okay? But they've been driven from the good land in the flats up into the vertical jungles on the borders. The, the Hogans and their children have seen 300-plus churches planted, hundreds and hundreds of people raised from the dead, and now they go global. They minister globally to outcast peoples. The Aborigines, Australia, to the Romani peoples, we would call them gypsies, okay? But the, their term, the term is Romani, and they have spread across the earth. They're everywhere, and that's where David goes, okay? <clears throat> uh, Janice and I had an opportunity to have Brother David and his team at a meal in our home in Monterra two years ago. Uh, there was banter, there was good stories, there was laughter. I mean, towards the end of the meal, someone asked me what my future plans were. And I responded about a coming conference and my plan to travel with, uh, to go be with some great men and women of God. And Brother David stepped on my lines and with a direct eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball word, he said, if the Lord wills. I was taken aback. I, I, I just nodded, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I started to, con to continue with the description of the conference, and David said again, if the Lord wills. And my response was, yes, sir. And he was right. I had given no thought to bringing that possible conference travel block of time. I had not laid that before the Lord. He was right. Now, Proverbs gets us going in the same direction as James. Because it says, a man plans his footsteps, but God orders his way. James says to his people, 
if the Lord wills, then, then you go for it. Our culture has inverted the quote from Augustine. See, Augustine said, you love God and then do as you please because everything about what you do and what you please has me is mediated through your love of God. In our culture, and perhaps even our church culture up here in the West, we say, do as you please and say that you love God. Now, the business of tossing off, well, if the Lord wills, can be taken as a vain, thoughtless repetition, sort of like, Gesundheit, bless you! And then parenthetically, what you mean is, keep that plague away from me, close parent. Okay, I mean, it, it's, it has nothing to do with really what you're saying. G, uh, James is, is urging a conviction of how we live, we plan, we execute, all under, if the Lord wills, coupled with a congruent lifestyle. James is calling his congregations away from independent living apart from God, away from autonomy. In church history, that phrase, it's Latin, Deo Valente, God willing. It captured the heart of the Reform Puritans in England. Many of them went to prison. Many of them you know, were hustled away from speaking publicly. You know, they were deemed as, as criminals. Okay? But they loved that phrase, God willing. And it passed you know, you know, through their their writings and things in the 1500s, 1600s, to the Methodists in the 1700s, and many of them signed their correspondence at the bottom, D.V., God willing, Deo Valente. Kent Hughes is one of the men that I have really enjoyed working with his commentary on the book of James, and he says, quote, God willing, unquote, is the posture of a burning heart. In verse 16, James puts the finishing, the finishing touches on reproof of the merchants who know better. They have had regular, as in the churches, you know, the churches know what, what these men talk about. They have regular networking sessions in churches in which they tell of their triumphs, of their return on investment. You know, they share, op share their opportunities with each other. They, they partner up, or they don't. But the bottom line was, these were bragging sessions. These self-made men, practicing self-determination, successfully were bragging. They were boasting. James could point to them and say, there, there's your example of the wisdom from below. There's your example of loving the world. The sense of the text is, is really, it was presumptuous bragging, over the top. Hey, y'all, look at me. And humility had left the building. So James says, that boasting right there, that's evil. And so those standing around the edges of those merchants, perhaps in envy, perhaps in revulsion, so that all know 
the baseline of applying wisdom from above, James says, if any of you know what the right thing to do, the good thing to do, if you know what it is, and then you turn aside from it, uh, I'm too busy. You, you overlook it. Uh, that's not my priority right now. You, you avoid it. There's no profit in that. Then James would say to you, and he would say to them, that is sin. Again, you know better. But you shuffle, you dance, you say, oh, I need to take this call. It's still sin. So, Forge family, there are lots of illustrations out there of how to do the right there are fewer illustrations out there of how to think clearly about your future finances and the place of work to acquire the resources for your needs. All seen, all filtered through Deo Valente, through God willing. So your assignment this week is to ask yourself one question under each category. Maybe you don't address yourself. Maybe you address that question to the Lord. You lay that out before him. So the first question is, what is hard for me when it's time to make the right choice? To do what is good. And then you wait and you listen. And the second question is, what is hard for me as I think about my future and my finances? And then you wait and you listen. In both, where does God willing empower you? Where does Deo Valenti put you into a soul bind, if you will, of not clearly knowing his way forward? And where do you need his help? All right, let's pray. Lord, the focus here is, is right attitude, right hearts. As we come up against the problems or into possibilities, we want to be able to place our signature, even our hand, as if it were yours, living out that, if God wills, lifestyle. Please open our eyes and hearts to this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge family, I love you. We'll talk soon. God bless.